So we are in Acts chapter 17. So we are going to be doing the first uh, 15 verses of Acts chapter 17 today. Can't quite do the whole thing. Uh, Today we are in Thessalonica, Berea, and uh, next week we'll be in Athens. But those three cities are covered here in Acts chapter 17. And I sat down and did a little kind of mapping out. And I project that we'll be uh, finishing up, wrapping up the book of Acts in early November. Seems like a long time, but uh, it just takes time, right, to go through the Word of God. We don't want to rush through it. But then our our hope, our plan, is to go into the book of Daniel at that point. So it'll be a really exciting time, so hold that in prayer. So Acts chapter 17, uh, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. We're going to read through the first 15 verses together and see what the Lord has for us. So beginning with verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading of your word, and would you guide us, would you lead us, would you minister to us this morning as we seek your face together. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a man who was driving, just like we do, stopped at a stoplight. And as he was stopped at this stoplight, uh, he 
lost interest and began to fiddle with his phone, wasn't paying attention to uh, what was happening around him. The light turned green, and he didn't notice that it had turned green. Ever happened to you? You're behind someone that happens? Okay, just... But this is a story. This is a real story. So he was sitting there fiddling with his phone. The light was green, and of course, if the story had been here, the second the light would have turned green, the people were on the horn, right? But in his situation, they were gracious and waited a few seconds, and then the lady behind him tooted her horn. He, for whatever reason, he didn't hear it, he didn't notice it, and he was just sitting there fiddling with his phone. All of a sudden, he looks up, sees a lady behind him, kind of freaking out in the car. And, and then notices that the light turned yellow, so he hit the gas and went through the light right as it turned red. And the lady behind him had just lost it at this point. And so she's freaking out, pounding the steering wheel, screaming. She rolled down the window, made an unkind gesture in his direction, but is stuck at the red light. And so as she's rolled the window back up and she's fuming and just pounding the steering wheel and she's late getting to where she wants to go, she hears a tap on the window and looks up and there's a police officer at the window. And he says, ma'am, excuse me, can you please get out of your vehicle? And she's like, well, what did I do wrong? He said, ma'am, please get out of the vehicle. So she gets out of the vehicle, she says, put your hands on the hood of the car, frisks her, cuffs her, puts her in the car and takes her to the station puts her in a jail cell for two hours while they figure out what's going on and then he comes back in two hours to the jail uh, himself and he says ma'am we're going to let you go I'm very sorry for the misunderstanding but you see I was behind you when this whole event happened and when I saw in the back of your, your vehicle the bumper sticker that said follow me to Sunday school and I saw the silver fish and I saw the WWJD sticker on the back of your car, I naturally assumed by the reaction of the driver that the car had been stolen. As we enter this passage of scripture this morning, we are dealing with the word of God having an effect on the lives of God's people. And we are going to be challenged this morning with what effect has the Word of God had on our lives. Uh, this lady was a Sunday school teacher. She was all of those things. And yet, in that moment of frustration, she was shouting obscenities, pounding on the wheel, doing all of these things. And yet, she had all the evidence to the contrary on the rear of her car. Last week, as we were talking about Philippi, and we were talking about Paul and Silas being in prison. And we read that section there where it said that uh, the prisoners were listening to them. And we talked about the fact that people are always watching. They're watching us to see if we're real, if our faith is genuine, if, who, if we are who we say we are. And so this morning as we come into this passage of Scripture... Let's see what the Lord has for us. We've entitled this, Receiving the Word Eagerly. So here we are in verse 1. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul always liked to, if possible, go to a synagogue and begin there when he came to a new city. And as we pointed out last week, Paul liked to go to the major cities along the way because 
traffic was going through those cities and people would come to those cities as the center of life. And uh, just like here, you know, there's, there's the cities and then there's the suburbs. And Paul's strategy, it seemed, and really the Holy Spirit's strategy, was to go to the populous centers, go there, reason with people, share the gospel, trusting that the Lord would save some, establish a church, raise up leadership, and then move on to the next city. You see, Paul was a church planter. He was a pioneer. He was a missionary. His heart was to see the name of Christ and the word of God spread. So as Paul and Silas and his entourage come into this city, into Thessalonica, Thessalonica is along the Ignatian Way, or maybe you've heard it referred to as Via Ignatia, Back in the ancient Roman Empire, when Rome had conquered the world under Alexander the Great, one of the things they did is they established their presence in major cities along the trade routes. They actually, in many cases, paved the roads. And the Ignatian Way was a paved road. It was a very safe road, and and it had lots of Roman traffic, Roman guards on the roads all the time. And so whenever the Lord led this missionary team over to Europe and they were traveling along the Ignatian Way. They had great safety on the roads as they traveled. And so they come into the city of Thessalonica, which was the foremost city in that region at that time. As they come into Thessalonica, keep in mind this is in what we know today as Turkey. If you go look on a map in Turkey today, you'll see a city called Salonika. Well, if you look at the word Thessalonica, the Thess, T-H-E-S, has been taken off. And today the word, rather than being Thessalonica, is Salonika. So you can go see that on the map. It's a city that still stands. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So Paul, as he went in and he found a synagogue here, remember in Philippi there was no synagogue, and he went down to the river and he met uh, this lady Lydia and the, the, the group of people who were worshiping there by the river. And he shared the gospel with her and with them, and, and she became saved. She became born again. She invited the team into her house. And then remember, as they were ministering and preaching there in the city, there was the demon-possessed girl, possessed, as we looked at last week, by the spirit of Python. And so Paul cast that demon out, and that lady got saved, but they got thrown in prison because of it. But it would seem that God had a plan and that they got thrown in prison for the sole purpose, it would seem, of preaching the gospel to the other people in jail and to the, Thess- to the Philippian jailer. And so God used them to bring the gospel to him. And then at midnight, after God shook the cell and their chains fell off, uh, the Philippian jailer comes in and says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your whole household will be saved. And they go in the middle of the night to this man's house and he washes their wounds receives them into his house, feeds them, begins to rejoice that his sins are forgiven right on the spot. And no doubt, knowing Paul and Silas, they begin explaining the word of God to him. 
And then we, we see that as they leave the city, we now have this interesting uh, multi-ethnic church going on with people of all different levels of society. We have the rich woman of Thyatira. We have this demon-possessed girl. We have this, this jailer. All different levels of society. And God has established such a, an interesting church in Philippi. And as Paul comes here into Thessalonica, he begins his, his normal routine and he preaches the gospel in the synagogues. And notice in verse 2, you'll see the word reasoned, and then in verse 3, you'll see explaining and demonstrating, and then in verse 4, persuaded. These are the things that Paul was always doing when he entered a city. So this word reasoned, as it says there, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them, notice, from the Scriptures. So, of course, the only Scriptures that were in existence at that time was the Old Testament, In the synagogue, of course, there was a full set of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the scrolls. And so Paul, being in the synagogue, being a rabbi, is reasoning with them. Reason means to dialogue with them. It means to present intelligent discourse. It means an exchange of questions and answers. So this was not just Paul orating from the pulpit. This was Paul you know, explaining, but then having a dialogue with the people. You know, and this is what we do in our small groups. This is what discipleship is all about. Having a time so that we can read the scriptures together, and then we can have questions, and we can talk about it. And notice what Paul was doing. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures. And it says that he was explaining and demonstrating. Explaining means he was opening. He was explaining it in such a way that they could understand it. This same word is used, this word opening. Remember in Luke 24, as Jesus met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and as he was walking along with them, explaining the scriptures to them, and after he had revealed himself to them when he got to their house, they said, didn't he open the scriptures to us, and didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke these things? Jesus opened their hearts by explaining the scriptures to them. And let me say this about that, this idea of Q&A, of reasoning, of dialogue. Sometimes we don't ask questions because we think we're going to look stupid, right? But I had a professor once who said this, and I I believe it with all my heart. The The only dumb question is the one that we don't ask. In other words, there are no dumb questions. If, if you have a question, chances are someone else has that same question. It's always interesting if you're in a class and, and the, the teacher or the professor is saying, are there any questions? And there's always that awkward silence until the first person raises their hand and says, well, I have a question. It's probably a dumb question. And then they say it and everybody else goes, yeah, you know, I have the same question. I didn't understand that either. And so Paul was opening the scriptures to them. He was making it so that they could ask questions, that there could be dialogue. And, and then Paul would explain it to them. And Paul was going to the other scriptures. Notice what he was explaining and demonstrating in verse 3. That the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So let's take a moment and do a little reenactment, okay? I hope you have your Bible this morning. 
If you have your phone, put it down. There's some Bibles behind that pole over there. Get a real Bible, and this is what I want to hear, okay? All right, turn with me to, uh, back to the book of Psalms. We're going to go to chapter 16. Now, we're just going to do a couple. We don't have time to go through something comprehensive, but this is basically what Paul was doing with them. He would read a scripture and say, well, what do you think about that? Who was it talking about? Psalm 16. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then saying something like, as it says here at the very beginning, it says a miktam of David. So Paul saying to them, so David wrote this psalm, right? And they're kind of like, yeah, of course. And he says, well, who was he speaking of when he said here, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption? And they're probably going, well, I, I don't know. And he says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Because after he had been punished and he was killed and brutally murdered on the cross, he was crucified. He went into the grave for three days. And they all knew that it's basically the fourth day is when corruption, when the flesh begins to rot. And he says, but God resurrected him on the third day. So this is a, a prophetic messianic scripture saying, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. This was the Lord speaking to his anointed. And so he says, now turn with me a couple of pages over to Psalm 22. And again, we could read this whole thing, but as you read it, you get to verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths as a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my joints are out of wax. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me and the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots and then Paul saying to them when Jesus was crucified this is what happened to him he was depleted I mean in a thousand years before the crucif- before Jesus was crucified before crucifixion had been invented by the Romans it is described here in detail in Psalm 22 And Jesus underwent that. And all of these things that happened to him, when when we understand the things that were written, the seven sayings from the cross, where Jesus said, I thirst, where Jesus, uh, you know, talked about that uh, his tongue was clinging to the roof of his mouth, that he was so dehydrated, uh, his joints being pulled out of, his bones being pulled out of joint, all of these things, they've pierced my hands and my side. These are the things that happened to Jesus. And Paul's saying, do you know anyone else that this has happened to? Now put this together back with Psalm 16. Do you know of anyone else who 
of whom that scripture spoke that I will not leave him his soul in Sheol and I will resurrect him? What if we go, I don't know, say to Isaiah 53. Turn over there for a moment. Just keep turning to the right till you find Isaiah. This should be a familiar passage to us. We read it often when we maybe celebrate the Lord's table or certainly when we come to Holy Week uh, at Easter. But as we read Isaiah 53... And Pastor Mitch gave a message last year on this, uh, talking about Isaiah 53, the forbidden chapter. Today, in the synagogues, in the Jewish synagogues, Isaiah 53 is forbidden to be read. Isaiah 53, as you read it, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Paul reading this and, and explaining to them that this is talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what it said there in Isaiah 53, 6 at the end, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we could keep going on in this chapter. But Paul reading it, explaining it to them and then saying, now what questions do you have? This Jesus was the man who he fulfilled that. He did all of these things. So when it says here back in our passage in Acts six seventeen, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating this is what he was doing. He was reading these scriptures explaining it to them and they had questions. Well, how do you know, Paul? How do you know that was talking about Jesus? And Paul being a man filled with the Holy Spirit saying, you know, and the Spirit bearing witness to his words giving his words weight and authority, saying it was Jesus. Jesus is the only man in human history who has ever fulfilled these things. So while Paul is there for these three Sabbaths, and that means he was there for you know, at least three weeks, he may have been there longer. We find in the book of Philippians, remember he had just come from Philippi to Thessalonica, and Paul is there ministering in this city, and I'll read this to you in Philippians 4, 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that is when they heard the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only, for even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So while Paul was there in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi that had just been established, it was just a couple of weeks old in the Lord, they were sending money to Paul down the road a hundred miles in Thessalonica. And what an amazing thing how God had touched their hearts. We also know as we go read the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go there in a moment as well, just to see what the Lord did in the hearts of these people, that Paul in that letter said to them, you know how I worked among you with my own hands, that he made tents and he provided for his own needs while he was there. So my guess is that while Paul was there ministering during this period of time, they ran out of money. He began to do some work. He was a tent maker by trade. 
and you know try to generate some income and while he was doing that probably the Philippians sent their gift their offering to him so that he could continue to minister so in verse 3 as he was explaining and demonstrating these things about the Christ and how he had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ they were becoming convinced and it says in verse 4 and some of them, not all of them, but some of them were persuaded. That means they believed, they understood it, it made sense to them. Their minds were opened. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So it's saying sort of in a conservative way, some of them were persuaded. But then it follows up and says, A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So Paul had great uh, open doors for ministry there in Thessalonica. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now here's one of the unique things about Paul as he went to these cities. And I think this is something that we need to think about. Here's, here it is. We do not know who is seeking God and who is not. We do not know who may or may not believe in Christ. And I think sometimes we may look at a person and we may assume, well, they probably don't want to hear this. But you see, Paul didn't make that assumption. We should never make the assumption that we think we know who is and who is not seeking God. You see, the parable of the sower and the soils was given to us for a reason. Back in Matthew 13, as Jesus talked about a sower went out to sow seed, if you remember that, and it says he sowed some seed and it fell on the wayside or on the path. Some seed fell on uh, shallow soil. Some seed fell onto rocky ground. Some seed fell onto a place where it was a mix of thorns and it was just not very good soil and it was sort of polluted by weeds. And then some seed fell on good soil and bore fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so we don't know what kind of soil the word of God is falling upon. And Jesus explained in that parable, he says, the seed is the word of God. The soil is the hearts of men. So Paul probably understood that parable. And so he would go and sow the seed. He would preach to anybody, Jesse, talking in his update last week and this week. What are they doing? They're just going out and knocking on doors. They're going to parks that he mentioned today. They've, they've went to a trailer park. And we don't assume who may or may not believe. We don't look at ethnic groups and make those kinds of judgments. Our job is just to sow the seed of God's word. Let it fall where it may. And trust that God will cause the growth. God will cause the seed to fall where he wants it to fall. And so Paul here and Silas, sowing the word of God here in Thessalonica, a great multitude believe, and a few of the leading women. Verse 5, this always seems to happen, doesn't it? And it's not just Paul. 
It's any time we take a step of faith to minister in the name of the Lord, to preach the word of God, to share the gospel with people. This is what seems to happen. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, and don't we see this so often in the scriptures? God would give success to Jesus in his ministry and the Jews would become envious because he's stealing their glories, taking away from their ministry. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now you say, well, who in the world is Jason and where did he come from? Well, apparently this was a faithful man there in the city of Thessalonica, someone who had believed either during this time when Paul had come and brought the word, he he may have been one of those who were persuaded or he may have already been a believer. But this was a place, evidently, he was one of those house churches just like Lydia's house was back in Philippi. And so they, they came and they knew that something was happening over at Jason's house that had to do with this way, this thing about Jesus. And it says that they attacked the house of Jason and they sought to bring them out to the people. Now it's interesting, the word Jason or the name Jason is Greek. The Hebrew equivalent of Jason is Joshua. And of course, Joshua, Yeshua means Jesus. Many people were named Joshua in that time. He's named Jason in the Greek. It's interesting to how the other translations render this verse here. We just read that the, the Jews who were not persuaded were envious and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Listen to how the King James renders this. They took a, a, unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Uh, the ESV said, some wicked men of the rabble. So you get the idea that these are not good guys, right? These are, the, these are the thugs. These are the troublemakers. These are the guys you go get if you want to stir something up. If you want to cause a problem, this is where you go. This is where the bad guys hang out. So the Jews went to those guys immediately and said, hey, we need your help. These guys are causing an uproar over here. And we want to put an end to it. We want to stir this thing up. And we want to get the leaders to come against them and to put them in jail and to kick them out. So that was their desire, verse 6. But when they did not find them, so they went to Jason's house, shake down Jason's house, but, but Paul and Silas, they, they aren't there. And they drag Jason out, sort of guilt by association. Okay, well, you know what? We know, they may not be here now, but we know that they were here. and they know that, We know that they were here because you invited them in, so you're guilty as well. Come here. And so they bring Jason out and they bring him to the rulers of the city and the other brothers who were there crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So their reputation had preceded them. They had heard some of what happened every, uh, in the other places where they had been. Certainly as these highways go, people are traveling on them every day. Some people had come from Philippi and no doubt told them, these guys were up in Philippi and hey, they, they created a stir up there as well. We, in fact, we had to throw them in jail. You guys should probably deal with this. You know, these guys are traveling around causing problems. But notice what it says about these believers. At the end of verse 6, these who have turned the world upside down 
have come here also. Now, are they turning the world upside down? Or are they turning the world right side up? You see, from the point of view of those who are unbelievers who don't know Jesus, to them the world is right side up. And anyone who comes along saying anything other than that is turning it upside down. You see, they're the troublemakers. So that, by default, puts Christians in a precarious position, doesn't it? That puts us in the position of those in the world seeing us as troublemakers, as seeing us as narrow-minded, as seeing us as bigoted. Why? Because the Word of God says what sin is. It says, no, women and women cannot be together. Men and men cannot be together. That's against God's law. And it says if you're living an immoral lifestyle, that's not what God desires. That's sin. So God does not approve of that. And so this, to those who are in what they call the right-side-up world, are looking at us as being those people who are causing trouble. Let's recalibrate ourselves this morning to what is right side up and what is upside down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man, the person who doesn't believe in Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ." Going on in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what Paul says here. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he's saying here, those of us who know the Lord, we're right side up. We understand the things of God because God has been gracious and given us of his spirit. In Ephesians 5, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. When you come to Christ, when you're born again, now the world is right side up. And so they came and they were upset that These men were disturbing the peace, basically. They were saying things about God and about truth and about life that the Bible says. But they didn't like it. 
And so they did their best to put them away, to, to trouble them, to put them in jail, to beat them. Verse 7, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Isn't it? You know, they don't like, they like the benefits of Caesar, but they don't like his rules. And so now they're going to turn it and use the rules of Caesar to their advantage to these men who have upset their world. And they're saying, they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And in that day, if someone said there was another king, they were brought before Caesar or brought before Rome or brought before the guards, and they were made to bow and they were told, you know, if you don't confess that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is king, we're going to behead you, we're going to crucify you, we're going to kill you. Verse 8, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, they took him into custody, but now they said in order to, to get out, you've got to buy your freedom, essentially a jail bond, a bail bond. And so when they had taken security or money from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they sort of got what they wanted, which is, you be quiet and we're going to take your money. And they thought that that would be an effective means of intimidation. Verse 10, then when the, the brethren, excuse me, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I've said before, let me say it again. Uh, if you don't already, you should write in your Bible. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a pro proponent of that. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 17, I think you should write in here 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Because this is where the church at Thessalonica was founded. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 16, you should write Philippians. Because that's where the church at Philippi was birthed. You should go over to uh, the book of Philippians. And, at, and there at the top of the book of Philippians, you should write Acts 16. In other words, be creative. Create your own cross-references. And at the book of 1 Thessalonians, you should write Acts 17. Because when you're reading, when you're reading devotionally, you're just reading through the scriptures and you've got your note there. Now you know as I'm reading Acts 17 in my devotional reading, hey, you know what, after I read 17, I'm going to take a pause here and I'm going to go over and read 1 and 2 Thessalonians and it makes sense. And we see what the Spirit did and Paul tells us, you know, I had intended this morning, but we don't have time to go read some selections from 1 Thessalonians and tie it back to what happened here, what the work that God did. Because in this three-plus-week period of time, you go and you look at 1 Thessalonians and you see what, what Paul taught them in three weeks is amazing. He taught them not only who Jesus was, and they believed the gospel and got saved, but he taught them about the character and the nature of God. In fact, let's go over there. We, we can do it quickly. I can do it in five minutes. Promise. First Thessalonians. Let's see. He talked about his witness before them. He talked about how he, he was encouraged by them. Uh, how he had uh, sent Timothy to minister to them. He pleads with them in, in chapter 4 about their purity because, of course, all of these cities were living in a time where idolatry was rampant and sexual immorality was the norm. 
But then he comes to chapter 5. Well, at the end of chapter 4, he gives us this, this passage of Scripture which we understand to be the teaching on the rapture of the church. And it's amazing to me that in three weeks' time, as he established this church, and people began to believe he's already teaching them about Jesus coming back for his church. That one day he's coming back soon. He's going to come and take his people to himself. And then in chapter 5, he moves into, you might have a heading there that says, the day of the Lord. And he talks about the seriousness of the gospel and the seriousness of the nature of believing in Christ and how our faith will cost us something. So it's an amazing thing. Uh, you know, First Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not going to go through the tribulation and experience the pour, pouring out of the wrath of God, which is what the tribulation is. So no doubt, he taught them about the tribulation. It's amazing what he taught these people. And then later in Second Thessalonians, you know, he teaches them about the great apostasy. He teaches them about the Antichrist and the falling away. I mean, he teaches them deep, strong, doctrinal issues. So as Paul is here traveling, he's in Thessalonica roughly in A.D. 50. In A.D. 51, he now finds himself in, in Corinth. He'd be, he had been in Corinth, we'll find out next week, or two weeks from now. He was in Corinth for about 18 months. During his time in Corinth, he wrote a letter back to, Thessal to the Thessalonian church. So that was AD 51. AD 52, about a year later, he writes 2 Thessalonians to them. To me, this stuff is fascinating to see where Paul was. He had just been there a year before, and he's getting word of what's happening in that church and how people are trying to rob them of their joy. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, I believe, is where he says, Hey, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. Why? Because some people had misunderstood his teaching on the rapture of the church and they had quit their jobs and gone to sit on the top of a hill to wait for Jesus to come take them back. He says, no, no, no. We wait. We wait actively. You continue to do what you're supposed to do. You work. But you wait on the Lord and you tell other people about Jesus while we're waiting. And he had to correct all these things for them. Just fascinating to read First and Second Thessalonians in light of Acts 17. So we find here, coming back to Acts 17, verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. So remember, they came, they did a shakedown at Jason's house. Paul, Paul and Silas weren't there, but they knew where, where they were, so this whole thing happened to Jason's household. They went over, found Paul and Silas, and said, hey, you guys better get out of town. So about 45 miles down the road from Thessalonica is the town of Berea. Now, one of the things that always amazes me as we read through the book of Acts, and this is not the first time that the brothers have come alongside Paul and Silas and said, hey, you guys should get out of town. You should go on to the next town. You got a closed door here right now. It was open when you came in. Now it's closed shut. They're going to kill you. And it's interesting to me how Paul, being a spirit-filled man, listened to these believers, these fellow believers, concluding, no doubt, that they were speaking from the Spirit. We're going to find out in a little later that the Lord sends this, uh, a man by uh, who's a prophet who prophesies with, uh, visually with a belt, taking Paul's belt and wrapping it around his arms, saying, hey, uh, the man who owns this belt, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound in like manner. 
And I love how Paul didn't look at himself in a prideful way saying, well, I'm, I'm the prophet. I'm the spirit-filled man. You guys don't hear from the Lord, I do. No, no, you see, he listened to his fellow brothers and sisters. And that's an encouragement. So when they arrived in the town or the city of Berea, they went into the synagogue just as they always did, verse 11. And it says that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And here's the qualification in that. They received the word with eagerness, with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So as Paul and Silas came in and they began to preach and to teach the word of God just as they had always done, what they're finding out here as they come into this city is that these people probably already had an element of faith. They believed in God and they believed in the scriptures. And as Paul and Silas came and did the same thing they did in Thessalonica and they reasoned and they explained the scriptures and they talked about the Christ, these people didn't just accept it and say, okay, well, okay, I'm convinced. They went and they read the scriptures for themselves. And this is where we derive the saying where we say to people today, you should be like a Berean, you should check it out for yourself, meaning... Don't believe anything you hear from this pulpit or from any other pulpit or online or on a podcast or anywhere that you listen to a sermon unless you compare it to the Word of God. You should be a student. You should be listening to whatever you're listening to with your Bible open in your lap. And your filter for everything you hear should be the Word of God. If you find a place that's a good source of of biblical information, of biblical truth, of godly preaching and teaching, praise God, cling to that, stick to it. But listen, compare. I appreciate so much when people call me out, I really do, and say, hey, you misquoted that. Or the thing you said was incorrect. You said it referenced to this, but it didn't. It referenced to that. That's okay. And that tells me you're listening. That tells me some of you here are being Bereans. And it's interesting here. They loved the word of God. And I think that's what it's getting to when it says that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. The idea of this eagerness or this readiness carries the idea of rushing forward. In other words, they heard the word of God and they rushed to where it was being preached and taught. Eagerness, one commentator said, makes all the difference in the flavor, quality, and the nobility of our Christian lives. Though these Bereans were cautious, they also remained open. Listen to this. No one has ever had a silver tongue who did not not have a golden ear. Meaning, If we preach and teach God's word, if we speak it to people, we have to have a golden ear, meaning we have to listen to it. We have to compare it for ourselves as we listen to it with the scriptures. And that's what these Bereans were doing. They were comparing what was coming to them with the word of God. They were saying, Paul, you said this about the Christ. Where was that again? What was that reference? I'm going to go look it up myself. I'm going to see if what you're saying makes sense or if I think you're just twisting it to your ends. And so they were checking out the word of God carefully. Verse 12, therefore, because they were doing this, because they were being Berean, because they were checking things out that were said by the word of God, therefore many of them believed. 
and also not a few of the Greeks and the prominent women as well as the men. We see a pattern being repeated here. The word of God is going forth with power. The spirit of God working through the word of God and the lives of the people of God is making an inroad to, the, to these cities. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So they, were, they had heard up the road 45 miles away, hey, th- that's where those guys were. The guys we went to Jason's house to find, they weren't there. Oh, they skedaddled. They went down the road to Berea. They're causing the same problems down there that they were up here. And they sent a group of people down. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Interesting. So they're looking at the situation and back up in Thessalonica, Silas and Timothy somehow weren't identified with them. And so they said, you guys stay here sort of under the radar. Let the guys come in. They'll see that we're gone. Then they'll go back to their town. But you guys stay and you establish this church. You work on this church. So he decided to leave, uh, as it says, Silas and Timothy there. So those who conducted Paul, there were people apparently around Paul, part of his team who were advising him. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So he leaves Silas and Timothy there in Berea to help that church get established. He goes on to Athens, which is where we'll come to next week. As he gets there, we'll find as we begin to read this next section of scripture next week, Paul gets there and he becomes very troubled by what he sees in Athens. And so he sends for them and while he's waiting for them to come, God begins to stir his heart. And so we'll get to that next week. But I'd like to close today with a couple of thoughts. This is a story that came from uh, one of the commentators that I thought was very appropriate. And it goes like this. A pastor friend of mine was in a nice restaurant one day. When the waitress came over to the table, he said, have you made the wonderful discovery of knowing Christ personally? In the conversation, she indicated that she had not, and she began to make excuses, such as, well, she couldn't get to church on Sunday because she worked, and she would be more comfortable with the Bible in her own language because she was Romanian, and so on. And since there were not very many people in the restaurant, my friend reached for a copy of a tract uh, from his pocket called Four Steps for Peace with God, but discovered he was all out and didn't have any with him. So he took a napkin and wrote out the steps on the napkin and he gave it to her and he went on his way, but later he went and got a Bible in the Romanian language and came back and gave it to her. At a later date, he came back to the restaurant which on this occasion was very busy. And across the restaurant, the waitress saw the man and she came over to him to tell him that she was reading the Bible that he had given her. In fact, she had sometimes read it all night long. Better yet, she had come to know Christ because of what he wrote down on that napkin and she pulled that napkin out of her apron and it was all tattered and torn and the words were faded. And she said, Would you write that down again for me? I have showed this so many times that my napkin is coming apart and others need to hear what you told me. What an amazing story. 
Now here's the point. As Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and Luke, as they came to Thessalonica, as they came to Berea, as they came to Philippi, what is the common denominator? What's been happening here? What's been happening is that the Word of God has been believed. The Spirit of God has been working in the hearts of people. And here's the thing. Notice that when they heard the Word of God, there was an immediate change in their lives. An immediate change. There was a conversion. They were saved. They were born again. You see, it was obvious. There was a night and day difference. These people believed. Their lives were changed. Just like the story of this lady here who read that napkin and read her Bible. And she came to believe. And here's the question for us. Think back on your salvation. You know, some people, our salvation is gradual over time. Maybe we grew up in a religious environment or maybe it just took a little bit of time for the Spirit of God and the Word of God to work on our hearts. Or maybe it was a radical, a very quick conversion, a total change. Whatever your story is, here's the question. What difference has believing on Christ made in your life and in my life? Has it made a difference? Going back to that story I told at the beginning, somewhat humorous, but not far-fetched. When people look at us, just like they were looking at Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail and listening to them, what do they see? What do they hear? You know, there's an old saying, I first heard it back in the 70s from Josh McDowell when he used to travel to college campuses and do apologetics and try to convince people. He was doing an Apostle Paul thing on the college campuses. But he had this saying, he would say to those who were believers, he would say, if you were being put on trial today as a believer, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You see, for these believers, there was evidence to convict them. They knew whose house to go to, didn't they, in Thessalonica? It was Jason's house. That's where the, that's where the church meets. Is there evidence to convict us. Do we, will we, like the Berean church, receive the word eagerly? Has the word of God, has Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit made a difference in my life or in your life? Am I a different person? Am I, as the scriptures say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a new creation in Christ, old things have passed away, behold, all things have been made new? Do I give God thanks daily for my salvation? Listen, do I read the Word of God daily? Is this like water to my parched soul? Psalm 42, like, uh, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. I hope that you're that way. I don't say these things to, to spur guilt. I'm saying this both as an exhortation and as an encouragement. This is what's happening as we read the Word of God penetrating these pioneer areas. It's making a difference. It's changing lives. And I think we have to wake up as, as the church today in the 21st century. A day of reckoning is coming. A day is coming when we might be called upon to say, renounce the name of Jesus or else. If that happens, will you stand the test? What do you truly believe about Christ? So I encourage you with that this morning. 
I exhort you with that this morning, that for me, for you, for all of us, that we would be firm in the faith that the Word of God has made a difference, that the Gospel has made a difference, that the Holy Spirit has made a difference, and that I, I love good and not evil. I rejoice in good and not evil. Forget the labels that are out there in society, political labels, all of that. Are you a Christian? Do your political views, are they derived <clears throat> from the scriptures? I don't care what party you belong to or what you say you believe according to the party's tenets. Do you believe what the scriptures say about those issues that we face in society? The word of God must be our filter and our grid for everything. They must be the lens through which we see the world. And we must see the world through the broken heart of God, the lost and the dying world that caused him to send his son. This Christ whom Paul preached must be the same Christ whom we preach. So Lord, we thank you this morning for what you did in Thessalonica, what you did in Philippi, what you did in Berea. And may we be like those people, Lord. May we receive the word of God as truth. May we receive it eagerly. And may you, Lord, make a difference in our lives. May you cause us to be salt and light. Lord, we are now light. We are not of the darkness. We are born again. We belong to you. Lord, in our lives, start here with us. You took a couple of spirit-filled men and sent them throughout Europe and caused churches to be born and whole movements to take place. Just two spirit-filled men. Lord, there's more than that here. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and use us as your people. Help us, Lord, to be salt and light in, in, in this dark place that we live. Lord, we don't look at the world in panic. We look at the word of God and rejoice that you are greater, you are bigger than anything the world has. We know in the end, because we've read the end of the book, that nothing will overcome or prevail over you. You are the one who prevails. There is no one worthy but the Lamb of God to take the scroll and to open it. And we know how it ends, Lord. You are on the throne and we are at your feet. And so, Lord, that's what we look forward to. That's what we rejoice in. But until then, we want to take as many people with us as we possibly can. Lord, make every one of us in here an evangelist that we would take the name of Jesus and the gospel of Christ to those around us. And we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.